Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. One of the ways that uh, God has uniquely blessed this congregation is that he has raised up uh, many young people who have desired to go to seminary. So we have said goodbye to a lot of people, but in many cases it's been for very happy reasons, and that is the case with the Fultz. Uh, Eric and Ashley have been members here in the past, and they moved away to go to Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, and so we really love to give opportunities for our seminary students to come back from time to time and preach the word to us, and that's what we're going to do today. So Eric, come forward and, and bring the word. Thank you for the intro, Bob. It's great to be with you all this morning. Um, I didn't become a Christian until my freshman year of college in 2011 at Ball State. And so New Life is actually the first church that I was ever really part of and that I ever became a member of. So this place has a very special role in my life, and many of you have also played a very special role. So it's sweet to be here. It really is. Um, yeah, I wanted to start off just to share a couple things about myself with you in case you don't know me. So I graduated from Ball State in 2015 with a degree in cell biology, and I've been married to my wife, Ashley, for three and a half years. I think, am I going backwards? Down. So that's us. She's right over there. I really enjoy her. Really like hanging out with her. Um, so yeah, three and a half years. Uh, and then in addition to going to seminary, like Bob said, I also still work with crew part-time. So I work with crew for about 25 hours a week at the University of Louisville and at IU Southeast. And this is my fourth year working for crew. Uh, and I love doing that. It's awesome. And then lastly, for those of you who know me, you might recognize that I've acquired a significant amount of hair since I last left. So if you don't want to come up and ask me how long I've been gone, you can just look at it and let me know how long you think it took to grow it out, and that's probably the right answer. But no, I am really, really honored to be here with you guys this morning. It really is such a privilege. But before we get into our text, I wanted to start by asking you this question. When something causes you to become discouraged, what do you do? So when you are discouraged, how do you respond? Do you shut down? Do you become a little irrational? Do you become afraid and try to hide? Do you feel ashamed and try to cover up what you're ashamed of? Do you feel guilty and point fingers at other people so that you don't begin to hate yourself or feel bad? I can respond in all of these ways. When I was a, a freshman in undergrad, I remember getting a B minus on my first biology exam. And I was a bio major, and I have a little bit of a sinful tendency to try to prove myself by my performance. And so when I got this test back, I was really discouraged. And I know some of you are thinking right now, like, this guy's insane. A B minus is not that bad. Um, and, I, and I really get that. But you know, this, I was a bio major. This is what I was supposed to be good at. And, I remember shutting down for the rest of the day when I got that back. And I remember thinking, well, I mean, I have to change my major. I can't be a biologist. I got B minus on a test. So obviously, I'm a very rational thinker under stress. Um, I felt afraid that I couldn't make it in my field. So I wanted to run and hide by changing my major. And I felt guilty for not working harder. So I blamed myself for not studying more. 
And I felt ashamed that I didn't do better. So I wanted to cover up and hide my grade because I didn't want people to know how poorly I thought I did. And so my discouragement led me to shame and guilt and fear in this situation. And the truth is that all of us at times get discouraged. And as a result, we all respond with feelings like this. Maybe some of you have felt that way recently. Maybe even this morning you felt that way. Well, discouragement is one of the major reasons that Paul wrote the letter that we're going to be studying today, which is Ephesians. So in chapter 3, Paul mentions that the Ephesians were discouraged because of his suffering in prison. And additionally, Paul hadn't actually seen the Ephesians face to face for about seven years. So they were discouraged because of his absence and his suffering. And there are a couple of cultural reasons they were discouraged as well. So uh, Ephesus was a pagan, polytheistic culture that also worshipped the Roman emperor. And so there would have been a lot of social isolation and ridicule for them uh, to follow Jesus in that culture. And there's also a lot of division between Jewish and Gentile Christians in Ephesus. So there was disunity, there was animosity. And so the Ephesians, taking all this together, they were uncultivated in their faith because of Paul's absence. They were subject to ridicule because their values and their faith went against the majority culture. They were experiencing animosity amongst themselves because of ethnic disunity. And they felt bad for Paul's suffering and maybe even feel that they were going to start to experience the same things themselves. And so it's easy taking all this in to see why the Ephesians were discouraged and were weary in their faith. And so after Paul introduces himself at the beginning of the letter, what is the very first thing that he says to these discouraged Christians? His first move is to share what God has done for them so that they would praise him. And when we as Christians are discouraged, we need to recognize the irrational things that we're believing. We need to be reminded of the truth, and we need to allow that truth to transform our discouragement into praise to God. And so my hope this morning is that this time will encourage you and lead you to a deeper worship of God. So our text is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And as I read the text, I'd invite you to stand if you are able. All right, I'll start. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, 
were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, this is such a rich passage, and this passage is really a benediction, which is meaning that Paul is blessing God for the blessings that God has given to his people. And so we're going to go through these blessings in four main sections here. The blessing in the first section in verses 3 through 6, so that's the first one here. Uh, The blessing in the first section in verses 3 through 6 is that God has given believers every spiritual blessing and has made them his people. And so verse 3 says that God has given spiritual blessings. So these are gifts that come from the Spirit of God. And these are greater than just material blessings, though the material things we own come from God as well. But Charles Spurgeon once said that a new heart is better than a new coat, meaning that spiritual blessings that God gives are greater. And God gives every kind of these blessings, the text says. We have abundantly more than anything we can ask for. And if you're wondering what these blessings are, if you look at the rest of the text that we're going to go through today, it outlines what they are. And so if you you take what this means, what that means for us is that if you are a believer, you have everything that you need to live the Christian life. You don't lack anything. If we move on and look at verses 4 through 6, we see that God chose believers and predestined in advance to adopt them as his children. So the words chosen and predestined here both carry the same general meaning, that God selected his people. And the text says that he did it before the world even began. Before his people had done anything or been anything for God, he chose his people. This is completely a free act of God. We did nothing to make ourselves good candidates. I don't know about you guys, but before God made the world, I wasn't really up to a whole lot. So I wasn't doing much to make myself very appealing to him. Like God didn't look into this crystal ball and just try to foresee what we would become and then choose us on the basis of what we would become. But he chose his people before they could ever make themselves choosable. And we know this because verse 5 says that he did this according to the purpose of his will. And that same word can actually mean according to his good pleasure. God predestined his people in love, and he did it for his own great pleasure. Not because he had to, not because he was obligated to, but because he wanted to. It brought him joy. You can just imagine God thinking, oh man, my people have no idea how good this is going to be. It's going to be so sweet. If you are a Christian, it made God happy to choose you before the world even existed. Talk about being known and secure. And what did God predestine his people for? We see two things in the text. First, verse 4 says that God did this so that his people would be holy and blameless. Because Jesus pays for sins, believers are counted as holy by God and are called to live their lives in holiness as well. And secondly, verse 5 says that God predestined us to be adopted as his sons. God's plan for his people not only includes salvation and transformation into holiness, but a warm, secure relationship with the Father. 
You know, this isn't some kind of impersonal transaction. It's, it's not cold, it's not callous, but it's, it's warm and it's intimate. It's, it's family. God has given believers every spiritual blessing and has chosen them to be his people. The second blessing in verses 7 through 10 is that God has redeemed his people and has revealed the mystery of his will to them. So to redeem something is to pay a price in order to liberate or set that thing free, to purchase it. And Christians have been redeemed from sin and death by the work of Jesus on the cross. Every Christian was at one point a slave to sin, without exception. And God rescued us, and he forgave us. And with what payment? Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And God's not stingy in this redemption either. It says that he did this according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. You know, he he lavished, he poured it out on us. God's not like frugally back here pinching his pennies, wondering if he wants to cash in on us, but he goes all in. It's it's extravagant, It's, it's lavish. And it wasn't haphazard. It wasn't like God didn't think it through. God's not reckless. It's not like God began to redeem us and then in the middle of it realized how much it would require and started scratching his head thinking, man, I, maybe if I would have known it would have been this hard, I wouldn't have gone through with this. No, but verse 8 says that God did this with all wisdom and insight. He thought it through. He considered. He calculated. And he was willing to pay the price, knowing how costly it would be. The Father knew every ounce of Jesus' blood that would be shed. He knew exactly how much his people would cost, and he chose to, to do it anyway. That's how great God's love is, that he bought us at such a price. And in addition to the redemption that this section talks about, in verses 9 and 10, we see how God revealed to his people the mystery of his will. And so the the word mystery can mean different things at different places in the Bible, but here it's referring to God's plan for the fullness of times in which he will unite and sum up everything in Christ. And that's one of those things that I'll read in Scripture and I'll think, like, what does that even mean? I'll just scratch my head like that. It seems a little difficult for me to understand. But it means a couple different things. Uh, First, the fact that God's plan is for the fullness of times means that God's in control of everything that happens throughout history. God knows what will happen. God makes what he wants to happen, happen. And he is fulfilling all of his purposes in his own time. Have you ever in your discouragement felt like you're waiting on God's promises to come? Like you're waiting on answers to prayers? Like you're waiting for the final deliverance that God has promised? In the midst of pain and silence and suffering, and grief, God is in control. And what is his plan and his purpose here? It says to unify and sum up all things in Jesus. All the disorder, all the confusing elements of life will someday be summed up in Jesus. All tensions and oppression and injustice between classes and ethnic groups of people will dissolve as we reach unity. All of the confusion in your life, 
all of the disorder, all of the complexity, all of the discouragement, all of the deep pain and suffering, all these things are going to be resolved when God fulfills all of his purposes at the end of history. That's the great resolution that all of creation is groaning for, the day when every wrong is going to be righted and every matter resolved by God. And so if you're sitting in that confusion, in that disorder, in that tension, in that complexity, know that everything is going to be united in Christ someday. Everything is going to add up. Everything is going to make sense in Jesus. And so that's the second blessing that Paul is praising God for, that he's redeemed us from slavery to sin, and that he's revealed the mystery of his purposes to us so that we can hope as we wait for that final day. The third blessing in verses 11 through 12 is that God has made his people his heirs and that he has given them hope in Christ. So here Paul is expanding on what he said earlier. Not only did God predestine us for adoption into his family, but he's also made us his heirs. And so this means that it wasn't just a formality. We have all the rights and resources and privileges that come with being God's children. It's a real relationship with real access to God and his resources. We're not impoverished and we're not orphans, but we are children of God that are cared for and provided in Christ. And this was all done by God's purpose. He carefully deliberated and made it happen. Which means that God's not going to finally get to some point where he says, man, I just cannot put up with these people anymore. This is like one sin too many. This is the last straw. I'm done with them. No, God fully knew everything that would happen. He thought about it, and it made him happy to permanently make his people, his children, his heirs. So God grants security to the discouraged. Inheritance also carries a future component with it too. We await the day when all these things are going to be fully realized. You know, we have a foretaste of our inheritance now and the promise of it fully becoming true in the future. And that's why in verse 12, it calls believers people who hope in Christ. We know that all things are going to be summed up in Jesus. And so we wait for their completion. Because God has made a promise, and he will surely do it. And the result of this hope is God being glorified and praised. God works graciously for his people so that they would be so overwhelmed by his love that they would fall on their knees in worship of him. So God has made us his heirs. He's granted us security and intimacy. And he's given us hope as we wait for the final fulfillment of all those things. And then the fourth blessing here in verses 13 through 14 is that God has saved Christians from their sins and has sealed them with the Holy Spirit. So first, it's, it's a secondary point here, but Paul mentions that when we heard the truth, the gospel, we believed in him. And so this is a reference to our conversion to becoming Christians. And Paul is saying that even this is a gift from God, that being a Christian is not something that we earn or deserve. It's a gift. Faith is a gift. But the bigger point that Paul is making here is that when we believed the gospel, when we became Christians, in that moment, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so this isn't some subsequent action that only happens to like super elite or really pious Christians. 
But God's spirit is a gift given to every believer the moment they believe. And the Holy Spirit sealing the believer has two meanings. The first means that by the Holy Spirit sealing believers, it, he protects them from the wrath that God will someday pour out on the wicked. So in ancient Jewish literature, seals usually metaphorically referred to uh, something to signify marking people for salvation from future wrath. And so when the Ephesians heard this word seal, this is what would have come to their mind. So as, just as God told the Israelites in Egypt to put lamb's blood on their doorposts so that they would be spared from wrath, so God marks Christians with his spirit to spare them from the wrath that we deserve for our sin. So that's the first purpose of sealing. But the second reason that the Spirit seals believers is to serve as a down payment for, or a guarantee for the future inheritance that we're waiting for. So God gave his Spirit to us as a promise of the full inheritance that we'll someday have. He's left us a pledge until the day comes that everything is finished in Jesus, summed up in Jesus. Our hope isn't without grounding. He's given us proof that he will fulfill his promises. In this proof, the gift of the Spirit is a gift of power to live as we should, of power to resist sin, of power to be transformed, and of power to bear fruit for God's glory. So if we step back and we look at the whole text that we just looked at, we see these things, that God has given believers every spiritual blessing imaginable, that he chose and predestined them for adoption into his family, that he redeemed them with the costly blood of Jesus, that he's revealed to them his plan to complete everything in Jesus at the end of history, that he's predestined them to be his heirs, that he has saved them from their sins, that he has sealed them with his spirit to rescue them from wrath, and as a promise that he will indeed complete everything in Jesus at the end of history. That's pretty encouraging to me. And there are, there are a couple of themes that show up throughout this whole passage that I think are worth mentioning. So at multiple points, it mentions that God accomplished these things according to his own purpose, according to his delight. Delight. God, God wasn't under obligation. God gave these things because he wanted to. It delighted him to give these to his people. And so if, if you think that God is frugal or that God is stingy, you're wrong. He's not. He's generous, and he gives good things to his people in his wisdom, in his timing. Another theme that we see coming up here in this passage is that all of these blessings are happening in and through Jesus. Every verse except for one I saw made a reference to Christ. Verse 3, we are blessed in Christ. Verse 4, chosen in him. Verse 5, predestined for adoption through Jesus. Verse 6, blessed in the beloved. Verse 7, redemption through his blood. Verse 9, God's purpose set forth in Christ. And so on. So what does this mean? What is Paul trying to get us to see? Paul wants us to see that everything believers have is because of Jesus. We have them because of the work of Jesus on the cross, and because believers have been united to him, meaning that his blessings have become our blessings, that we've partake, partaken in his life. And another theme that we see show up here is that the final purpose of recalling God's blessings is so that we, in the end, would bless God in return. 
realizing what God has done for us should lead us to worship him. I mean, how can we, how can we hear these things as true of us and not be led to praise? Paul starts his letter to discouraged Christians by recalling what God has done. So we set our minds on truth so that our hearts will be moved, and as our hearts are moved, we will worship God. Just to force facts into our minds is not enough. Knowledge is not an end in itself. Knowledge that does not end in worshiping God is idolatry. The true end of knowledge is the worship of God. And so we recall all these blessings, not to increase intellect, not so that we sound cool and know some cool things to say, and not to be man-centered, but so that our hearts would be stirred up so that ultimately we would praise God in response. And so just like I mentioned when I started, encouragement comes from being reminded of the truth. It takes, takes our eyes off of ourselves and back onto God. And this is important. I'm not implying that remembering the truth of what God has done should make us naive about real suffering or pain. Just to remember who God is, what he's done, doesn't mean that pain and discouragement doesn't exist. And Paul doesn't start his letter to the Ephesians going, man, you guys are so whiny, you complain about everything. That's not what he does. You can be honest about your discouragement and about your struggles. And in fact, being honest about why we're discouraged, about our pain, about our suffering, will actually lead to greater transformation. But we need to allow God's truth to get beyond our minds and into our hearts. And so if we just try to deny or cover up discouragement, we'll just start treating truth like band-aids that we'll cover our issues with. But the problem with that approach is that it doesn't actually cure anything. It just covers it up. And that's, if I'm honest, that's how I often try to deal with my struggles. And the reason it doesn't work is that I hide the discouragement that I feel, and so I actually never allow the truth of God's word to transform my heart, to transform my wounds. But when I finally began to be honest about my discouragement, I just started to realize how much past shame that I had that I wasn't letting God into. And I was just trying to mask it with like a little quote or a little line of truth. And I felt ashamed for how often I had failed in the past and for how often I still fail now. I, I felt ashamed for things beyond control, about the fact that I, I grew up with uh, in a poor family and that I, I, I wasn't popular growing up. You know, like those, those things that take root so early on that you don't even realize are there sometimes. And, and I think I just wanted to prove myself to escape my shame. But as I began to be honest about these deep wounds in my heart, instead of just masking them, God's truth and his grace began to transform and heal and change my heart in ways I could never have imagined. So God's truth has to cut to the source of our discouragement in order to really heal us. And so Christian, as you think through these things that we looked at, these blessings in the first chapter of Ephesians, ask yourself, where do you have these wounds of discouragement that you're refusing to address? 
what are the things that you're just trying to mask or cover up? Because if you're able to be honest with your discouragement, if you're able to be honest with your pain and your suffering and your wounds, God's truth is going to transform you in amazing ways. And if you're not a Christian, I recognize that we have spent the majority of this time looking at things that are true of believers. And if, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, these blessings aren't true of you right now. But if you come to Christ, they will be. Because if you don't, if you don't know Jesus yet, you can. When God made the world and human beings, we sinned against him and we separated ourselves from him. And we deserve judgment for our sins. We, we can't remove our sins on our own. But Jesus died on the cross to pay for them. His blood redeems his people from slavery to sin. His death is what made all of these things that we've talked about possible. And because he gave his life for sinners like me and like, for sinners like you, anyone who comes to him has their sins forgiven, is welcomed into God's family, receives a promise of eternal life, and becomes a new person. And so Jesus holds, off that free off, holds out that free offer to you right now. And he beckons that if you don't know him, that you would come to him. And it's my hope and my prayer that you would. Let me pray for us, and I'll invite the band up. Lord God, I thank you for this time this morning in your word. And I thank you for the many things that are true of us in Christ, God. Things that we don't deserve. Things that we deserve the opposite of, Lord. We deserve punishment and separation because of our sin. And yet you, in your great mercy, you looked at people who did not love you and did not want you. And you went after them. And you purchased them. And you redeemed them. And you changed them. And so I got, God, I pray if for those Christians in here today who are just in the depths of their discouragement, Lord, I pray that you would help them to be honest about these areas of their lives that they're discouraged in, that they would be transparent, and that they would humbly, with their hands open, allow you to transform those things in their hearts. And God, I pray that if there are people here who don't know you, people who have never tasted and seen your goodness, that they would that right now that you would change their heart and they would see how little hope there is apart from you, Lord, and that they would come and trust in you and find mercy and grace in Christ. God, we, we praise you and we bless you for these things that you've made true in your son. We love you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.